Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Coming up on this edition of The Intersection, more material from the Faith Radio Meeting House Broadcast Center at the 2017 National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Orlando. But first, since this podcast is being released on Easter weekend, I wanted to provide some comments from recent interviews highlighting various aspects of the gospel story. First, it's Emilio Ramos of Red Grace Media, the producer of a film that offers some insight into the significance of the message of the gospel. Then it's an author who specializes in novels aimed at a young adult audience. Her name is Jenny Cody. She's written a book that spotlights various aspects of the life and death of Jesus and brings in an element of the composition of Handel's Messiah. Then it's Michael Chung, who has taught at Houston Baptist University and the Fuller Seminary Texas Extension, bringing some perspective based on the final 10 days leading up to the cross. And on this edition of The Intersection, commentary on the confirmation of Neil Gorsuch to the U.S. Supreme Court. First, it's Jeannie Mancini of the March for Life, who shares reasons why pro-life people and groups have been supportive of that nominee. And it's Mandy and Kai of the Family Research Council, who provides some analysis of the justice's philosophy, as well as the process leading up to his confirmation. Plus, on this Intersection podcast installment, more material from the 2017 NRB convention in Orlando, where Faith Radio and the Meeting House had a broadcast center in the exhibit hall. Jonathan Burnus of Jewish Voice Ministries International shared comments about what Christians can reflect on concerning Jesus being Jewish. Also, Charles Morris of Haven Ministries visited with me to discuss how God is at work in the Middle East, even against the backdrop of the violence being perpetrated by ISIS. This is the intersection of production of The Meeting House, and I'm Bob Crittenden. Emilio Ramos is preaching pastor at Heritage Grace Community Church in Frisco, Texas, founder of Red Grace Media and the producer of a film called Unpopular, which highlights some of the characteristics of the gospel message, which, while unpopular, is quite compelling, life-changing, and authentic. With some information about this film, which can be viewed online, here now is Emilio Ramos. Well, Unpopular. Uh, the reason we picked that was kind of we we found it to be kind of a perfect play on words, right? Because nobody wants to be unpopular, and yet um, when something is deemed unpopular, everybody wants to know why it's unpopular. <laughs> so we thought that would be the perfect opportunity to present the gospel, which in a in a sort of a double meaning way that that is really true. It's a paradox, right? That the gospel today is unpopular because it tells us that we have sinned and we have fallen short of the glory of God and that without Jesus Christ, we're condemned. And so it's not a very popular message to tell people, you know, we've all sinned and we, we're going to be held accountable by a holy God. And what we so desperately need, we cannot give to ourselves. And so the message is really runs against the culture of everything that we see around us where our culture tells us that you know because of the influence of things like humanism that people are basically good that people have every resource residing within themselves that's necessary in order to have a good life and so this this film really and really the message of christianity the message of the gospel 
is really completely contrary to that. So we know it would be unpopular, and Jesus promised that we would be unpopular for believing and, and for spreading the message. But just because it's unpopular, that does not mean it's not true. And certainly, of course, the gospel is true. And so that's what we're trying to share with, 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 with everyone. It's not just students, not just college campuses. We, we use the film everywhere. Take us through the content, if you would, of, of this particular video presentation. Sure. Sure. Well, yes. Uh, you know, I was, I was joined in this presentation by James White from Alpha Omega and Paul Washer uh, from Heart Christ's Missionary Society. And uh, they both did a, a fantastic job in presenting uh, their points. And the, the, the video basically operates on three different points. And that's, we, we really wanted to bring the awareness and the knowledge of sin. What is it? You know, I think today, increasingly, sadly, in many places in America, we're really living in post-Christian times. We can no longer assume that people have a basic rudimentary understanding of the most fundamental tenets of Christianity, including what is sin and the fact that people are sinful. And so we dealt with the subject of sin uh, so that folks would have a biblical understanding of what sin is and why it's so important to understand that. And then, of course, we focused on the work of the cross. We really wanted to zero in on on the work of the cross, because there we understand that what Jesus accomplished, he accomplished because there was no other way for, for, for sinners to be redeemed. And so we really wanted to really, really emphasize what took place on the cross, and so James White does a fantastic job of really, um, of of really giving some heavy content as far as that goes. And then probably the last component that we share explicitly would be the the subject of repentance, because you cannot have a proper gospel call if you don't include the message of repentance, which is Jesus's message, the apostles' message. You know, Jesus said, "The time is at hand. The kingdom, the the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand." Now repent and believe in the gospel. And so we really brought in the message of repentance, and Paul Washer did a great job of just emphasizing what does rep- biblical repentance look like, and what is, it that, what is it that God is calling us to do? And so it moves along those lines, and, and, and the whole time uh, during the film, you know, we're making heavy appeals to people to, to believe and to trust and to turn to Christ who, who came to offer salvation uh, to sinners that so desperately need it. Mm. Emilio Ramos here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to the website unpopularthemovie.com. The Intersection continues now with author Jenny Cody. She is author of The Roman, The Twelve, and The King, part of the Epic Order of the Seven series of young adult novels. In our recent conversation, she discussed the premise of the book, which describes events in the life of Jesus, as well as the process of the writing of the Messiah by Handel. Here now from that conversation is Ginny Cody. 1735, you wouldn't expect the story of Jesus to start there in London. But the premise is, um, I always look for a fresh way to tell tell the, these stories, these accounts, and God gave me this idea in book three, I wrote Isaiah, writing the prophecies of Messiah. Um, and as I started looking towards writing about Jesus and the passion, it dawned on me, wow, wouldn't it be really cool 
if the animals were with Isaiah as he wrote the words, wouldn't it be fantastic if they're with Handel as he writes the music to the greatest piece of music that will ever be written, the most important work? And so God gave me this idea that all the, though the animals had already lived through time with, with Jesus for this particular mission, they go back and they revisit the life and the passion of Jesus. So, so the, the book, the Romans of Travel and the King is bookended with Handel, um, first getting turned down by the King of England to be the, the, the King's composer. And he's so, you know, distraught about that. But, you know, God knows when we're turned down for things, he has something bigger for us to do. And so um, that's the plot line of this thing. And, of course, it ends with the climactic scene where that same king stands when he recognizes, you know, a king greater than he in the Hallelujah Chorus. So that's the premise of it. And God was just put his crazy favor on me. I actually flew to London and I sat in Handel's composing room and I wrote the scene of him writing Messiah in the room that he wrote it. So it was just staggering to do this. Um, so that's the premise of it. And it's kind of a fun, different way to do it, but it's a lot of fun. How did you want to really set up the narrative of the life of Jesus leading up to his crucifixion and resurrection? Well, of course, the most important set it was the prophecy, you know, that everything that Jesus was to do to come here for for the passion, it was foretold centuries before that. And that was important to show. You know, many times kids think, oh, bad people did something mean to Jesus. No, 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 no. It, it was it was planned all along. And so I wanted to show that, that, you know, the Easter story, the Christmas story started way before. And then, you know, I, I really had to pray for God to, to help me put words in Jesus's mouth because, you know, I had to bring him to life. Well, we know a lot of what he said, but then there's a lot that we don't know either. And so to humanize him and to have him interact with, with, with people beginning as a child, interacting with his parents, interacting, you know, and, and telling all those Bible stories, but I had to fill in the, um, those things that we don't know that he, he, he said. And so, um, it was a real holy quest that I did not take lightly. I had to do extensive research. Um, you know, I, I read about 50 to 60 books for every book that I write, uh, extensive commentaries to make sure I I, I got it right. Um, and so Jesus, you're going to fall in love with him. You're going to see the human side of him. You're going to see the holy side of him. You're going to see all of these biblical accounts through the harmony of the Gospels all the way up to the passion and um, and the heartbreak and the joy and the love of why he did what he did. Kids, they're going to grasp it. I, I had a letter from a 13-year-old girl. Actually, it's on my website, epicordofthe7.com, on, on the Roman page, from a 13-year-old girl who said, you know, I've read this story all my life, and I believed it, but I never really grasped it until I was there. Mm -hmm. And she said, at the crucifixion scene, she said, I felt like I was one in the crowd watching. Mm. And she said, I finally got it. And And that's my goal with these books is to – take you into the scenes where you're sitting there, you're smelling it, feeling it, hearing it, watching it come alive before your eyes. Jenny Cody here on The Intersection. Learn more by visiting the website epicorderofthe7.com. Spell it out, dot com. Well, continuing now with this edition of The Intersection, it's Michael Chung. 
formerly an adjunct professor at Houston Baptist University and the Texas Extension of Fuller Seminary. In our conversation, he discussed some of the events and principles he relates in the book, The Last King of Israel, Lessons from Jesus' Final Ten Days. From that conversation, this is Michael Chung now. Well, I would say that um, of the six chapters that I wrote on those first two days, the thing that really stood out to me was just the issue of rest. Um, Jesus is traveling so he can spend the Sabbath in Bethany. And then um, during the Holy Week, there's really not much mentioned on Wednesday. So there's evidence that within the last 10 days of Jesus' life, he rested twice because there's usually a special Sabbath during the Passover celebration, and there's evidence that Jesus did honor that. And I, that's one thing that really struck me, because he knew his mission was coming to an end, and yet he chose to rest twice. And we know that he has you know, done things in the Sabbath, like healing and teaching, but the, the Gospels are very silent on those days as far as activity. And uh, I just thought that spoke a lot to me, just how we're just have that temptation to always go, 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 go. And, and Jesus here, the last 10 days, he's going to be Isaiah's suffering servant. He spends two days resting. So that was one thing that stood out. I guess another thing that stood out was this, the issue of meals. I mean, I love to eat. I don't know about you. Um, but uh, just how Jesus valued the meal time as a time of great fellowship, of his time of ministry, and uh, just that culture valued that time. And, and I, those, are the, those th- two things stood out. Um, on day, I call them day one and day two of Jesus's 10 days. Palm Sunday, what do you see as the significance of how he approached the travel that particular day and the method by which he came into Jerusalem? Obviously, the, the significance is that Jesus is coming in as the Davidic Messianic king, and he rides on the donkey, much like Solomon rode on the donkey. When Solomon, his uh, David's son, entered, um, he rode on... Um, David's mule. And so when Jesus is riding on the donkey, the people will see that, yes, this is indeed the Davidic king, the Davidic Messiah that's come to rescue us. There's evidence that palm trees are not native to Jerusalem. So people as far away as Jericho, which is about 12 to 13 miles away, um, could have brought the palms um, in anticipation of the king coming. And so, yes, Jesus coming in, riding on the donkey and having the, the, the coats um, the clothes spread on over him is just, uh, and, and Jesus accepting the worship is just him saying that, yes, I am the Messiah, the King. And, and obviously the Jews today, majority of them will not acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, except for the Messianic Judaism. But uh, that day was the day that he came in as the Davidic King. And, and unfortunately, that's probably one reason why uh, people were so upset um, just days later on Good Friday, because they were expecting this Davidic warrior to lead them to battle, and what they got was Isaiah's suffering servant. But we know that the, the second time Jesus comes, he'll not only save the nation of Israel, he will save the whole world, and we just cannot wait for that day. Elaborate just a bit about Jesus, the significance of him, his his being a king, and why you called your book The Last King well, of Israel. Well, that's a great question, Bob. The, the original title was actually called The Ten Days of Easter, but no one liked the title. My wife didn't. <laughs> My wife didn't like the title, and, and the three or four people I shared with, they were either saying they didn't like the title or just very apathetic. So I kind of got the hint that maybe I should look for a different uh, title of the book. So as I was studying, I realized, oh, um, yeah, I do talk about how Jesus fulfills the Davidic covenant, how you know the, the promise to David 
in Second Samuel seven was that there will always be uh, someone on your on the throne from your line, and Jesus is clearly from the line of David. And there's been no king, um, there's been no physical king since you know, like like since Assyria took over in seven twenty two B.C. the northern kingdom, and then uh, around six oh five B.C. Um, Babylon took over the southern kingdom of of Judah. There's been no physical king since then, but Jesus clearly came to fulfill the Davidic covenant. That's why I, I titled the king the, the 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 title of the last king of Israel because that was the promise that someone on Jesus on David's line will be on the throne, and very clear Luke chapter one, very clearly states that Jesus is that Davidic king, and the fact that he rides in on the donkey is, is shows the people that yes I am that king that the promised king that will rule forever. And we know as Christians that he, he rules spiritually now, but we look forward to the second coming when the everything's culminated and, and the physical rule and the spiritual rule will, will be together. That's going to be a glorious day. I can't wait. Michael Chung here on The Intersection. You can find out more about the book by going to the website whiffandstock.com. That's W-I-P-F and stock.com. His Twitter feed is at P-R-O-F-M Chung. This is the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. Learn more through the website meetinghouseonline.info. You'll find a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to, download, or share full conversations with recent guests on The Intersection Podcast. Also, through the site, you can subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast-receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs can be accessed. Plus, you can follow me on social media. I have a Twitter feed as well as a Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content, including recently added content from the 2017 National Religious Broadcasters Convention. The website, again, is meetinghouseonline.info. Well, continuing with this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's Jeannie Mancini, president of the March for Life. In our recent conversation, she discussed the qualifications and judicial philosophy of Neil Gorsuch, now confirmed he was President Trump's first nominee to the U.S. Supreme Court. Here now from that conversation is Jeannie Mancini. That's really the backdrop, of course, for many of us, what what motivated our vote in November. That was the backdrop of what was happening at the level of the Supreme Court. And so here we are, you know, in a moment now, today, where we hopefully will see Judge Gorsuch confirmed. And it's, it's such a moment of hope after losing Justice Scalia last February, a year and a half ago, and then having such an exceptionally qualified candidate um, nominated by our president. It's incredible. And it's true. I mean, going back to the inauguration and then the March for Life only a week later, and for the first time ever, we had the sitting vice president of the United States there actually presenting in person to all of the perhaps 100,000 marchers who were there and um, promising us that this administration is really pro-life and, gosh, lots of other things. That same week, they reinstated the Mexico City policy, which, of course, prohibits abortion providers overseas from getting international aid money from the United States. Um, and since then, we've seen lots of other good things, but especially at this, you know, critical moment in history, it's just something that none of us anticipated when you look back to last June. I think we all thought 
wow, our country is really headed in a bad, bad direction. Mm -hmm. Well, there were so many people praying for this election and praying for our country. And obviously, it's a cornerstone principle that those in governmental authority respect life. And it's so very important that we continue to pray for people, for God to raise up people, men and women who are bold to speak out on behalf of the, the rights of the unborn and the value of life in the womb. And let's talk just a bit about Judge Gorsuch as President Trump's first nominee. Many people, as as you alluded to, made the nomination of Supreme Court justices a principal piece of motivation to uh, to their vote in November. And so you have the president fulfilling that promise with respect to Mr. Gorsuch being his first nomination. For the pro-life community, as you began to do your research and as you began to look into some of the rulings, of course, someone might say, well, he's never ruled per se on abortion, but there are clues with respect to his viewpoint on the sanctity of life, correct? Right, right, right. And and even even more his his judicial philosophy on on basically how he he would interpret his role, you know, on the board on the on the Supreme Court. And so we know that Roe versus Wade, made back in 1973, was widely accepted as a decision of judicial activism outside of the parameters of what the court is really called to do. And even justices like Ruth Bader Ginsburg has has conceded that, that that the decision of Roe versus Wade wasn't necessarily an interpretation of the Constitution. It was more of kind of, she didn't say, this is putting words in her mouth, but it was more of legislation um, creating a so-called right that that wasn't really in the Constitution. And um, many said it at the time, many have said it since then. And, you know, it it really comes down to judicial philosophy for many. Do you think that the Constitution is sort of a developing document, or do you think that the Constitution is as it was originally written by the founders and that the judge – is called to interpret the Constitution and interpret um, that according to the different laws that he's looking at and then make a judgment based on that. And, um, and, and when you look at it like that, Judge Gorsuch is a strict constructionist, a strict constitutionist. So he, he does that, he has that philosophy where it's to interpret the Constitution as it was originally written. And that's really what we're looking for in a good Supreme Court justice, somebody not who wants to legislate from the bench based on his social philosophies in life, but who's a strict constructionist and, and wants to interpret the Constitution as it was originally written. Jeannie Mancini here on The Intersection. The March for Life website is marchforlife.org. Well, Government Affairs General Counsel for the Family Research Council, Mandy Ankaye, joined me recently to discuss President Trump's first nominee to the U.S. Supreme Court, Neil Gorsuch. From that conversation, this is Mandy Ankaye. Judge Gorsuch is a stellar nominee, and he, especially during his hearings, did a fantastic job emphasizing his fidelity to the rule of law and similar to Justice Scalia, his fidelity to the text. Um, of statutes into the text of the Constitution and a desire to follow um, that text. What did you hear in the confirmation hearings that really confirmed that Gorsuch was, well, as you might say, as advertised? 
You know, he just consistently reiterated his fidelity to the rule of law, his desire to rule in accordance with the text of statutes, um, even when that uh, ruling may not be an outcome that he likes or may not be an outcome um, that um, garners sympathy, um, but that that is the role of the judiciary as an independent body and that the role of the judiciary is to analyze the text of the statute and not to create law. Um, he emphasized the separation of powers um, on multiple occasions during the course of the hearing, and, and that's definitely very encouraging. Well, and from some of the commentary that I heard about the confirmation hearings, one of the the real threads that I think is so very important, it should be encouraging for people of faith, the the fact that he has a, a handle on who should be doing what with respect to the three branches of government, like you say, the separation of powers, and in fact, chiding senators, and he was basically saying, hey, I'm, paraphrase, I'm not a legislator. That's your job. You bring me as a judge, as a justice, a potential justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. You bring me the law and I will judge it as it's been said. You know, he's the umpire. He's the one that that calls the balls and strikes the legislator, the legislators, the legislature, the Congress. They are the ones that are to create the law. And unfortunately, and that has been a trend that I know FRC and other pro-family and Christian organizations have pointed out, you've had judges on the, especially on the federal bench and the US Supreme Court even that that adhere to a philosophy of judicial activism in fact creating new law and we think about Obergefell, Roe v. Wade and others that 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 fit that mold that's exactly right and one of the cases that that was emphasized on was Citizens United where he you know, pointed out that he just looked at the definition of person that Congress um, passed, and uh, that's his duty is to look at what Congress has passed and not to create law. And he, you know, like you said, chided the senators who wanted him to change essentially the law from the bench. So just like you pointed out, he he did a, a fantastic job um, pointing out that um, that is the role of the of the judiciary to to apply the law, not to pass the laws. Neil Gorsuch, as the nominee to the U.S. Supreme Court, the latest justice on the U.S. Supreme Court, how does that change now important cases that could come before the U.S. Supreme Court in the future? Well, it certainly gives it a full body to consider all of these um, important cases. One of the first cases that he's going to have the opportunity to hear is the Trinity Lutheran case, which is a case about um, whether a school that's run by a church should be um, able to access um, the same types of programs that secular schools are able to access. In this case, um, a, a tire uh, refurbishing of a playground using tire rubber. Um, so it'll be interesting to watch what types of questions he asks. He has a very solid record on religious freedom and, and religious freedom cases. And so we're definitely looking forward to seeing what types of questions he asks and how he applies the law in that Trinity Lutheran case, one of the first cases he'll hear as a, as a justice on the Supreme Court. Well, people have heard me discuss with various guests a couple of cases, the Hobby Lobby case with respect to the Department of Health and Human services mandate during the Obama administration regarding free contraception and drugs that could cause abortion being provided under the health care plans, the Hobby Lobby case, Little Sisters of the Poor. Of course, that's sent back by the U.S. Supreme Court to the lower courts. But 
while Judge Gorsuch, Justice Gorsuch, was on the Tenth Circuit, he ruled from a from a position of being rather supportive of religious freedom. Correct. That's definitely correct, and in fact, he ruled on behalf of the sisters, Little Sisters of the Poor, and on behalf of Hobby Lobby before um, those cases made it up to the Supreme Court, and ultimately the Supreme Court um, essentially affirmed what he said um, as a Tenth Circuit uh, court judge. Mandy Ankai from the Family Research Council here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to frc.org. Well, now some conversation material from the Faith Radio Meeting House Broadcast Center at the 2017 National Religious Broadcasters Convention in Orlando. The president and CEO of Jewish Voice Ministries International, Messianic Rabbi Jonathan Burnus, visited the Faith Radio Meeting House Broadcast Center to share some perspective, including the origins of the Christian faith in light of its Jewish background. Here now from that conversation is Jonathan Burnus. What do Christian believers that may not come from the same background that you came from, but what is it that we need to know and appreciate with regard to the significance of Jesus being a Jew? Well, I think it begins with really understanding, and when I say understanding, not just with the mind, with the heart, that salvation has come to you through the Jewish people and through the rejection of the Jewish people, so you've been given salvation with a debt of responsibility, Bob, Romans 11, 11 through 15, to provoke the Jews to jealousy. That is so critical that God has chosen a people not to replace Israel, but to extend Israel and then bring them back. So the wild, as, and we have this analogy in Romans 11 of, the, of wild olive branches being grafted into a natural olive tree, which is Israel, and then God says, if, if he can graft in the, the unnatural, how much easier to regraft in the natural? And that's the responsibility of the church. So uh, a lot of, our, of my time and the time that we devote at Jewish Voice, uh, the work at Jewish Voice, is to educate Christians about their roots and their responsibility to love, bless, and bless the Jewish people, to uh, be supportive of Israel, and to reach out to Jewish people that God has put in their life because no one else is going to tell them the gospel. Question i got to ask you, and this is actually, it's two questions in one, but you were talking about the long history of anti-Semitism. And we're seeing, I believe, in our nation today, there is a spike. We've just been through, as we look at current events, we've been through a, a situation where you've had vandalism take place at Jewish cemeteries, and you've you've got this this whole area of anti-Semitism that is causing great concern. You also have a a situation, I think, in America where there's a real misunderstanding about America's special relationship with Israel and the Christian Church's relationship with Israel. So, so really, I say all that to say there is a, I think a a serious lack of knowledge, a lack of appreciation Indeed. for Israel and the Jewish people these days. It's a very, very serious issue, and it's nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. Yeah. Replacement theology, which is a, a, a an, an erroneous uh, belief, demonic teaching that the, the God finished with the Jewish people because they rejected Jesus as their Messiah— God said irrevocably, I'm done with you. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that God irrevocably accepts the Jewish people regardless of their of their rejection of the Lord. He'll preserve us and bring us into his, this new covenant. 
that Jesus brought for the world, to the Jew first. Uh, so that era of replacement theology keeps popping its head up, and sadly it's growing again. The, the whole BDS, the Boycott yep. uh, Sanctions the Investment, investment sanctions, Movement, yep. has been growing so rapidly in uh, on college campuses, and the younger generation of Christians are buying into this. And we, we have to proclaim the truth that God says, I'll bless those that bless my people, curse the one that curses the, the, the people of Israel, and that that mandate is still in effect today. It's as real as it was when it was penned uh, in the time of Abraham. That is still the reality. And we need to teach the truth of God's Word, that God has a plan for the Jewish people, and that he's called the church to be a light to the Jewish people. We teach this repeatedly, and that debt of responsibility is the result of understanding in our heart that Jesus was a Jew, that he came to his own people, and that that truth that Israel brought, the, the truth of salvation, of redemption, and all the blessings that have come from the Jewish people are inherited by Christians. They've been grafted in and become partakers of those blessings so that we can reach back out to them in love. Jonathan Burnus here on The Intersection. He is the author of the book, A Rabbi Looks at the Supernatural, a revealing look at angels, demons, miracles, heaven and hell. You can learn more through the website jewishvoice.org. Finally, on this edition of the Intersection Podcast, it's Charles Morris, president and speaker for Haven Ministries and the author of the book, Fleeing Isis, Finding Jesus, The Real Story of God at Work. From that conversation at NRB 2017, this is Charles Morris. ISIS is not dead. They're not, I mean, they're setting up shop in Afghanistan. Uh, they're setting up shop in the Philippines. They're in three times as many countries as they were two years ago. Uh, so they're not over with. However, what they don't realize is that they have become a tool by the living God, Almighty God, for spreading the gospel. So they don't know it, but they are actually helping to carry out the Great Commission at the same time. And do we have time for a story? We do. I do want to ask you yeah, to... Yeah, no, please, yes. Because that is quite an interesting statement. I completely understand what you're saying here. In the midst of this Christian persecution, there are incredible things that God is doing. And you might say that that in the midst of this trouble being caused by ISIS, God is doing a work in the lives of people. So, yeah, unpack that he, just a bit he, as he far really as how is. that's causing... Absolutely. Uh, and many times it's through vision or dreams. Yeah. When I was on with you before, I talked about the, uh, uh, the, the, the evangelist in the Middle East who's a Christian Arab who's for 40 years, he's translated for Billy Graham, and he's the one who told me this is the golden age of Islam. What does that mean? It means that more, uh, more people, Muslims, have become followers of Jesus and have met Christ as Lord and Savior in the last few years than in the prior 1,400 years of Islam combined. Wow. So that, that's what's going. But it's not all the dreams and visions. Uh, you know, I was there just a few weeks ago, and I was—I—I—I uh, I, I have a friend who is with the humanitarian aid organization. Uh, he was raised as a Plymouth Brethren. He knows the scriptures, and yet he had never shared his faith one to one in all his life. Thirty-three, two cute little boys, and a beautiful wife, and he had never sh shared his faith. But he was in Mo right on the edge of Mosul, and he was doing an assessment to bring in water and food, blankets, cold there at this time of year. He was, he was doing this assessment, and this Kurdish Peshmerga army staff car 
screeches to a stop next to him. A man jumps out who it turns out is the commander of their special forces for the Kurds and they are an elite fighting force. Even though they're Muslim, they protect Christians too. And the man says, are you an American? Yes. Get in the car. You're a Christian. They think all Americans are Christians, Bob. <laughs> and, and so uh, he says, Islam is not working for my country. It's not doing anything for me. I want you to tell me how to become a Christian. Wow. So for the very first time in his life, this young man, 33 years old, uh, he had never had a formal evangelism course, but in his bag he had a little pocket Bible. And so he did what he knew, and that was he read great portions of Romans to this man, this this guy you wouldn't want to mess with in a back alley. And at the end of an hour, great tears were welling down this guy's face as he and his driver prayed to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. So I met him a few weeks ago, and, and what, what an encouragement. And I met him in the context of three U.S. Army Special Forces advisors, and he wanted us to come by at a certain time so we could meet him. And we come out, I see he's got a Bible in his desk, and he says, I, I, I said, what, did, what are you doing? And he starts laughing, and he says, I wanted to ask these American U.S. Army guys if they knew Jesus like I do now. There is, there is a story that is coming to mind from the book of Acts. It's mm-hmm. almost like when these guys prayed to receive Christ. It's, it's the story of Philip. It is. And the, it is. the Ethiopian eun- yes. eunuch, you know, brought into modern day. You That's know, it's right. almost like, well, <laughs> where's the water to be baptized? That's after, right. after that, it sounds so very similar to the, to the story. Exactly. <laughs> I, I, you know, the Lord is on the move. And, 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 and I mentioned this, ISIS doesn't realize, but I've heard this from many uh, evangelical pastors more than once in the Middle East. But, you know, Bob, I've heard it in China and I've heard it in Cuba. The end of Genesis. What, what Satan meant for evil, what you've meant for evil, God has meant for good. And I see that happening with ISIS right now. We don't hear that in the mainstream media. And so I think Christians need to, be take, to take heart. We need to be encouraged. And I think what's happening over there is the reflection of God's glory that we need to receive and be reflecting as well. Charles Morris here on The Intersection. Find out more by going to the website haventoday.org. Well, we are nearing the end of this edition of the Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of the Meeting House. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Through that website, you can get subscribed to the Intersection Podcast. You can also connect to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can get connected to video content also. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.